Hello and thank you for listening to episode 187 of 60 Minutes With. I'm Dave and this is another of our interview shows and in this one sees the return of John Walsh to our show and can you believe it's almost three years since we last chatted together way back in episode 59 and if you listen to this and you didn't listen to that episode please go back and have a listen to it uh, go more in depth with John uh, about him his career go more in depth about the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation we do have a catch-up about those things in this show but this show mostly concentrates on John's upcoming book which is released on September the 10th you can pre-order it uh, if you do pre-order it especially on Amazon if you wouldn't mind doing that through the link on our website it's not going to cost you a penny extra it's just that we get a little bit back too and that all helps with the running of the website and the podcast his book is Harryhausen the Lost Movies I'm going to say no more about it because you're just going to be enthralled with the the snippets of information that John's going to tell you. I've got it pre-ordered. I can't wait for it to come out. I'm sure after you've heard John uh, and some of the stories that he's going to tell you, you'll be jumping online and pre-ordering it too. It sounds like it's going to be an absolutely fantastic book. Uh, we also talk about, and there is a link in the podcast notes, you may well have already noticed it, that John's going to be doing a sign-in in London as well. That's on September the 15th. So if you're in or around the London area on that day uh, and you would like to meet him, get him to sign the book. On top of that as well, there's a great screening that I'm not going to tell you about now. Listen to John. He'll tell you all about it. There's so much great things happening. John, thank you so much. Uh, returning to the show, I can't believe it's been, well, it's been three years since we last had a chat. I know, Dave. Yes. Hasn't the time flown? It's gone very, very quickly. Uh, I'm so excited to have a chat with you uh, about Harryhausen, The Lost Movies, your new book that's out in September. Uh, but before we do that, there's a few things, because it's been a while since we've had a chat, I'd just like to have a bit of a catch up. The first thing I want to ask you about is, of course, the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation because of course it's such a huge year next year and for anybody that doesn't know if you would like to explain why it's a huge year next year John and uh, what events are already planned for it right well um, next year is Ray Harryhausen's centenary um, he will have been 100 years old and we have a series of different events and screenings planned but most significantly we have a very large exhibition planned at the uh, Scottish uh, National Gallery um, it's going to be running for six months Wow, and that's, that's good. Edinburgh. Yeah, so we're going to have everything in there, and a lot of the creatures are being especially restored uh, for the exhibition. Well, that sounds very exciting indeed. <laughs> so tempted to uh, to travel there and have a look. Uh, I mean, work has been going on for so long with you know what you folks have been doing for this centenary year. Uh, I'm sure you've been swamped at times, haven't you, with with what the stuff that you've got to do? Yes, I mean it's a case of seeing what's practical. Um, seeing what we can achieve and also doing something that's sort of in keeping with Ray's legacy. I mean, in terms of approaches, we get approached by people wanting to do models and toys and T-shirts and pins and, and what have you. And all of that's fine, but it needs to be somebody who already has a business sort of plan in place um, because we are very concerned about what's called centenary fatigue. And I don't know if you've heard about this. <laughs> no, I haven't. No. Right. So if you plow all of your energies into any public public figure and they're having a centenary, then what do you do for the years that follow? And there's been some sort of quite high profile centenaries recently of well-known writers. 
and you know publishers have have recreated books reprinted books with special centenary covers and what have you and because it hasn't really caught the public's imagination things have fallen a bit flat so we want to do things which are you know that exceed people's expectations yeah yeah that, that makes perfect sense as well I think it's I think it's absolutely wonderful that coming up to his centenary year that his popularity is just it's probably still on the up more and more people are discovering him I remember sitting you know I think we talked about this on the last show with my son and watching uh, Valley of the oh my god Guanji Guanji is just that I have this brilliant memory of him sat on my knee and just wanting to watch it again and again and again and living in the age that we do with you know CGI uh, the stop motion that Ray did is just, it is magical. No, it is. I mean, it's, um, people think of Harry House now as a genre in himself. So when we think about Walt Disney and the films of Disney's classical golden era, then we have a certain stylistic or narrative framework in mind. When people talk about Harry House and film, for you, Dave, maybe suddenly you might think of the skeletons and Jason and the Argonauts or Grangy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so people do identify Ray almost as a genre. He didn't invent special effects, and he certainly didn't invent stop motion uh, photography and animation, but he may as well have done, because the sort of ownership he took of the um, process was unlike anyone in film history up to that point, or actually since. Because if you think about it, Dave, Ray was not a facilitator for somebody else's vision. Mm -hmm. Willis O'Brien facilitated the vision of the people making King Kong in 1933, and he was wonderful and, and, and expert at what he did, and Ray worked... Um, as a trainee, effectively under Willis O'Brien. When Ray stopped working in 1981, lots of wonderful effects people who were influenced by Ray, like Phil Tippett, Dennis Muren, and so on, Industrial Lights and Magic, um, they were facilitating the ideas of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Jim Cameron. <laughs> Ray was facilitating his own ideas. You know, he was a creative powerhouse. He wasn't just a technician. And there hasn't been anybody before or since that's occupied that unique place in the sort of cinematic timeline. So that's, I think, it's quite a difficult concept for non-filmmakers to sort of appreciate. Definitely, yeah. It's one that we're going to make sure they do for the centenary. (laughs) Yeah, another way that you're doing it as well, uh, just to make people aware, anybody that doesn't know already, you know, I've been a subscriber to your podcast since episode one. And love every episode that you release. They're always so, so informative, yet always so entertaining at the same time. Uh, what's been happening with the podcast lately? For anybody that hasn't listened, how how would you sell it to them? Not that you need to sell it because it's Harry Howe and the the inside information that you give is is you know so, so interesting. But yeah, could you tell a little people uh, tell people a little bit about the podcast? Well, I suppose the podcast looks at the work of the foundation. So the foundation is the collection of the 50,000 plus items that Ray Harryhausen left behind in the charitable foundation, the Harryhausen Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, so myself and our collections manager, Connor Heaney, discuss what's happening with the foundation. In particular, we'll talk about film anniversaries, if there's a 50th or a 40th anniversary of a classic film coming up or screenings or books or whatever it might be that we're doing. Um, and we might request information so for the Lost Movies book, we found some information by requesting it through uh, through the fan base. Um, we keep people informed with what Ray's doing, so people who are kind of new to it can find out a bit more. But essentially, it's people who kind of know and like Ray's work that come to us for something in more detail. 
and to hear from Ray Harryhausen himself, because before he left us, I recorded 25 hours of audio commentaries with him um, from all of his classic films, all of them bar one. And uh, we we use clips of those to illustrate our points. And in, in an upcoming podcast we have for the Lost Movies, we have some audio from Ray talking about the scenes cut from his films, the films he didn't oh, make. Fantastic. Um, his, his, his views on digital and computer technology. So... You know, it's it's better to hear it from the horse's mouth always, <laughs> and then you know we're very much the disciples of Harry Housen at the foundation. But it is always we sort of we we're his representatives on earth. It's probably the best way to describe it. Uh, but we try and keep the podcast fun. You know, we want people if they're on their way to work, and it's a Monday morning. You know, you want to hear something that's not the Today Show. Mm-hmm. You want something yeah. that's that's light and that will give you sort of pause. Um, and and I think we I hope we do that. You do definitely, and there's such a you know broad spectrum of shows out there. I've been loving the ones about the music as well. You know, you're just in uh, volume four of the music, and there's been some, as well as the, the wonderful stories. There's some wonderful music played on them as well. Yes, I mean we've we're, we're sadly coming to the end of that special series. When we yeah. started, it, we thought we'll try it as an experiment to see if there's much interest because the early films had effectively library music dialed into the film so they weren't even unique scores but people were fascinated by that that era of of composers who didn't get credit on films that they weren't composing for having their music matched <laughs> to pictures they never saw um right the way through to, to the famous bernard herman collaborations and, and the laser films the very last episode will be going out at the end of this year will be about clash of the titans and uh i can tell you dave that the original score wasn't going to be by Lawrence Rosenthal at all. It was going to be by a, uh, a multi-Oscar-winning composer, and he didn't get the gig after Ray and Charles Schneer um, basically threw out his demo reel. Oh, my word. And we have the demo reel. It's the only copy. We've checked with the estate of this very well-known composer, and we're going to be releasing extracts of that demo reel at the end of the year in our Clash of the Titans special. Oh my! And and that, ladies and gentlemen, is why you need to subscribe to the Ray Harryhausen podcast. <laughs> you know, it's just one great example right there. How, now, how about you, John? Before we get into chatting about the book, you know, you're you're a multi-award-winning filmmaker. I put the review uh, on our website of, of Tory Boy, which I loved. Uh, is there anything happening with you, movie-wise? Have you got anything planned? Um, I have, and I, I finally, where, whereas my work used to be a counterpoint to Harryhausen. Um, it's finally, it's got me, it's got me in. Um, the foundation about 18 months ago set up a, a new company called Ray Harryhausen Films Limited. And uh, we've set up a production deal with Morningside Films in America. And yeah. we're officially in development with the unmade force of the Trojans, which was the next film after Clash of the Titans that never saw the light of day in 1984. So we have a full script. We have production materials, sketches, sculptures, and a very clear idea of what Ray wanted to do. And I've been spending much of the last two years effectively rewriting Force of the Trojans because the reason it didn't happen, and we can see about in, in my book, it's all about why it didn't happen in the book, was because the criticisms that were levelled on Ray Harryhausen and Charles Schneer after Clash of the Titans really hit home. And the main criticism was that they played fast and loose with Greek mythology. So for mm-hmm. this next film forces the trojans they adamantly stuck to the very letter of the text and of course some of these fables don't quite work when you sort of string them together so it's quite complex and 
quite a few characters with very little resolution so it doesn't work as a kind of a three-act uh, drama so i've uh, with permission from from everyone involved i've 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 reshaped it kept all of ray's creature sequences but shaped it down so there are uh, there are far fewer people involved and that it makes more sense um and, and put something back in something that had been avoided for for so many years beverly cross wrote jason and the argonauts and clash of the titans and force of the trojans and in each iteration of those adventures they danced around the whole idea of going to hell and finding <laughs> out what was happening with hades in hell and we have some unseen imagery from jason the argonauts in the book because originally the golden fleece dave i don't know if you know about this was going to be taken from the seven-headed hydra but inside hell ah okay and wow. the skeletons the children of the hydra's teeth were soldiers and they were going to break out of their graves inside hell and chase jason and his sailors so very different to how the film is portrayed in the in the 1960s version so it didn't happen something similar was going to happen in clash of the titans around hades and hell and so on and there was a lot of anxiety you know we think of these eras the 60s late 70s early 80s particularly in america the religious lobby had quite a powerful voice as it used to in this country you know i remember um seeing news footage of nuns picketing screenings of the exorcist in different mm. parts of london yeah yeah and I went to a Catholic boys' school, so that was like, wow, that, that's something. If you've got nuns out on the street picketing <laughs> your film, that's that's not good news, is it? Um, so I've I've put those elements back in. So now Hell plays a significant top and tail end to force the Trojans. We've shown it to you know, interested parties, and I'm very pleased to say that it's a step, if not a stride, closer to being made now than it was in 1984 that's fantastic that's absolutely fantastic i mean it leads us wonderfully into into the book uh when did work begin on this book and how did it begin was there any particular thing that was the genesis of it starting well i can say without any sense of irony the book has been 100 years in the making because mm -hmm. these are all plans that ray harryhausen had from an incredibly early age ideas he wanted things that inspired him things that fired him on um, I've been working on it properly for two years and a year before I'd been thinking and planning it and it was one of those it's, it's a difficult thing to describe because the publisher said to me how many lost films will feature and how many images do you have and I said well I think it's 45 to maybe 50 lost film titles that cover unmade films films Ray turned down and scenes cut from Ray's own films mm-hmm and there might be as many as a hundred pictures and they were like okay well that's that's good that there could be a book in there there was 80 films um, <laughs> there was nearly a thousand images wow and what should have been a 16,000 word book was a 37,000 word book <laughs> because some little scraps of paper I found which I didn't know what they were or a bit of correspondence with with well-known writers and directors it, I was having to play detective and with lots of help from Connor at our central base for the where the archive is we were trying to sort of piece it all together um and we didn't want to leave anything out but we didn't yeah. want to include anything that legitimately wasn't one of ray's offerings or yeah yeah potential films so it was unlike anything um the foundation's ever been involved with before and ray never spoke about these unmade films 
Really? I would say with him, wow. yeah. I mean, I've I've known him since I was eighteen, and I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm much older now, so I've known him for about thirty odd years or more. Um, I'd say to him, you know, what about I've read in Starlog magazine back in the day, Sinbad goes to Mars. Oh, we don't talk about those films. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so when I got to know him better, I asked him more, and it wasn't it it wasn't a pleasant experience to recall films that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. So what was it that you were finding then? What was it? Was it, like you said, pieces that it, paper that he'd written on, sketches that he'd done? Uh, were, yeah, were there any uh, models that he'd made as well? Oh, absolutely. So so for some of the, if you like, with Force of the Trojans, you had everything done properly. Um, so you had sketches, models, and, and a lot of that material was filed together. There was sketches done by other artists from around the world as well, which were included for the first time. But as you, as you go back to earlier films, there are more titles he tried to get um, greenlit in the early days, in the 40s, 50s and 60s, than there was in the, say, 70s or 80s. He concentrated yeah. on doing much more bespoke material for fewer projects mm -hmm. that didn't see the light of day. So if I said to you, Dave, there's some unmade Sinbad films, you might think, fair enough, or some unmade dinosaur adventures, you'd think, mm, okay. Mm -hmm. But if I said to you he tried to secure the rights to the Conan series in the late 1960s, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, wow. So this was well outside of our expectations. Um, he also wanted to animate uh, Dante's Inferno based on the Gustave Dore oh. uh, religious etchings. Yeah. And uh, that was something that uh, he was very keen to do. So he had all of these projects that were effectively pet projects for himself. But he had his finger on the pulse as well. He tried to get War of the Worlds out before George Powell got War of the Worlds out. Um, and he'd mentioned it to Powell as well. He'd also made the mistake of mentioning another H.G. Wells project to Powell he was interested in, The Time Machine. Oh. Oh, this sounds so there was, there was four H.G. Wells projects Ray tried to pursue. Time Machine, War of the Worlds. And ultimately, he got First Men in the Moon made and that was that was created and was a success and um, but there was another one called food of the gods <clears throat> and we have sketches really some quite impressive artwork for that and it's a it's a salutary tale um as as often wells's stuff is around food technology which seems really relevant to today mm -hmm. and about yeah. growing giant and a mean giant godzilla sized farm animals like chickens yeah and so on and it gets out of control so we have some amazing artwork for that in the book. What was the thing that knocked you off your feet the most as you were finding all of these these different things? Well, the thing was, it did knock me off my feet. When I'd get a new piece of artwork or I'd be like, oh, we found the original for this, or, oh my God, I can't believe this looks like Alien. <laughs> so when we got the artwork through that Chris Foss, the well-known illustrator did for Sinbad Goes to Mars in 1978, I spoke with Chris Foss and his daughter Imogene, who's effectively his manager these days. And Chris's stuff sells now for for big figures in art galleries. And he did lots of epic um, covers for books for Isaac Asimov and so on in the 70s as well. He's had his own book out. Well, he was working with Ridley Scott on Alien at the same time he was working with um, Alejandro Jodorowsky on The Unmade Dune whilst making uh, production art for Sinbad Goes to Mars. So that sort of industrial brutalism from both projects kind of effectively infected the artwork for Sinbad 
goes to Mars. Chris gave his originals over to um, to Ray and Charles Schneer. Hasn't seen them in 40 years, the four oh, pieces of artwork. Wow. One of them wasn't even finished. And fantastically, Chris Foss finished it for this book. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> and I remember saying to Chris, this is amazing. That's at such a time when you were busy with uh, with Ridley Scott and Alejandro, you know, for June. And he said, oh, yeah, I was working with Ridley, uh, with um, Stanley Kubrick as well for AI at the time. Because AI, they tried to get out of the gates um, in the early 80s. Yeah. So for Chris to be in such demand from such iconic filmmakers and to be working with Harryhausen, is, um, that really knocked my socks off. And the fact he finished the artwork for the book, oh, that, was, that was incredible. Oh, but yeah, to find the films that Ray turned down, the f- projects that people offered him, because that tells you what the outside world was thinking. Yeah. So if, if you know what people offer you, if they don't offer you much at all or think little of you, then that's clear from, from, from <laughs> their actions. <laughs> because Ray didn't really work as a gun for hire, um, he occasionally did uh, One Million Years BC for Hammer Films is kind of an example of that. Yeah. Um, but it's fascinating for us at the foundation to see what he was offered. And in 19, Christmas 1975, he receives a phone call from a, a very, very famous Italian Hollywood mogul, Dino De Laurentiis. Oh, yes, yeah. And says, is this Ray Harryhausen? Says, oh, this is Ray Harryhausen. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> they had this personal conversation, not through agents, not through managers and so on. The producer rings straight to Ray's house because he's in the, the telephone directory in Ilchester Place, Leafy Holland Park, just about five or six doors away from Michael Winner. <laughs> and uh, he says, Ray Harryhausen, I, have, I hope you're sitting down. It's a week before Christmas. I hope you're sitting down. I have great news for you. I'm about to remake the greatest film in cinema history, and I want you to head it up for me. I want you to do the, uh, the special effects, the trick photography as Dino called it. Mm-hmm. And, and Ray was fascinated. He said, oh, oh my, what, what is this? And he says, well, I'm bringing King Kong back. <laughs> and, and Ray was thrilled. I mean, Ray, as it turns out, and I didn't know this until I looked at private papers making this book, Ray had tried to secure in the 60s a remake right for King Kong. So had <laughs> Hammer Films. Mm. But anyway, uh, Paramount Pictures had the rights. Dino secured them. Um, they're making the film it's all been agreed they've even started casting so ray says well how big is your budget and they had a massive budget at the time mm-hmm. it was one of the most expensive films ever made so money wasn't an issue and ray said well when when are you going to get started and what's your plans and so on he said we need to be in theaters in 12 months <laughs> so of course ray was like well it, oh i would need 12 months simply to prep and prepare and create the models yeah and yeah. another two to three years possibly given how many screen minutes Kong would need um, to animate he said no 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 we have to be in theatres this time next year please don't tell me you can't do this for me (laughs) and Ray had to say well no no one can it can't be done he said it can be done if you can't do it I shall build a mechanical Kong and he did he did didn't he Yeah. and it worked for all of uh, a minute and a half (laughs) in in a sequence at the end of the film but for the rest of the film, it was a a young makeup artist in a effectively in a monkey suit. <laughs> That's a great example, I see, of you know the work that was being offered to Ray, you know, at the time. It's such a shame, isn't it? You know, the things that could have been. Well, the offers didn't stop. I mean, in the early eighties, 
and this is the one that got people excited at comic-con um i just done san diego comic-con in in uh, july a panel on the lost movies book and as i say people weren't too surprised to know about some of the mythology films but when i said to a comic-con audience ray harryhausen turned down the first marvel feature film <laughs> the room I, went mad i oh, bet my jaws dropped <laughs> and uh it was it was we have the script we have the letter the offer from stan lee for the first x-men movie oh and that was in 1984. wow that's that's 35 years ago now mm. wow just the mind boggles about, you know what these movies could have been really it's you know it's it was very hard to get these sorts of special effects films uh, commissioned and it wasn't because studios didn't like them studios loved them it was because if if you dave were the the studio head at, at fox or at paramount back in the 50s and 60s you could be studio head for 10 15 years maybe mm-hmm, yeah. by the sort of late 70s early 80s it was two to three years these days it can be about six to eight months yeah so you'll want to commission films that are like comedies or action films that can be turned around within months. You don't want to be waiting for years and years for something to turn up. Yeah. Only for your successor to get the credit, perhaps. Yeah. What was that? What was the hardest point? Not the hardest point. What was the most difficult part of putting it together? Obviously, there were so many different pieces that, that you were finding. But was the one particular project of Ray's where you had to go down a, a deep rabbit hole? to get the information that you wanted i think um well i suppose that would be the one i found last i found a scrap of paper and with correspondence that didn't relate directly to this scrap of paper i found the very last entry the very last film Mm. um in the 1950s ray had made um the beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms yeah and he'd made it, it was based on a short story by um, a Ray Bradbury. And of course, Ray Bradbury was a, uh, a childhood friend of Ray Harryhausen. They'd known each other for a long time. When The Beast and 20,000 Fathoms came out in 1953, it caught the attention of another filmmaker who was also making a film set on the waves that involved a mighty beast breaking through the waves. It was John Huston and his 1956 version of Moby Dick. Yeah. So Ray Bradbury was commissioned to be the screenwriter on Moby Dick. And when Bradbury um, worked with John Huston very closely and was there on different parts of the shoot, it became pretty clear they were having a really serious problem um, in trying to create a convincing whale. Mm -hmm. Because... I don't know if you remember when you watch something like Thunderbirds and Jerry Anderson sort of special effects, water is one of those things that often gives away the scale of models because it, does, it has a certain yeah. quality and mass around yeah. it. Uh, and one of the tricks is that you try and use flowing salts instead of water because it has a much more ethereal look you know, where possible instead of using water for a waterfall. Mm-hmm. But there were so many scenes where the whale would crest um, the water and knock sailors off their boats. Um, they tried different things. The budget spiraled, and you've got to remember this is 1956, spiraled from its initial $2 million to $4.4 million. Oh, that's simply because amount. Houston wasn't convinced what they were doing with special effects was working. 
So Ray Bradbury contacted his good friend Ray Harryhausen. He knew Ray Harryhausen could do this and do it very well indeed. Because, of course, he would have animated the boats and the sailors falling. Yeah. Um, so we have um, some amazing sketches that were done on a legal pad. A legal pad is a, is a yellow, sort of slightly larger than A4 pad that Americans use when they're in legal meetings. Ray kept every scrap of paper and would sketch on anything. Mm-hmm. And we have these, these series of sketches, just quite rough. And the story goes that Sir Ray Bradbury refused to give them to John Huston simply because Ray Bradbury and John Huston, who are both immense talents, um, fought like cat and dog <laughs> because they were very similar personalities. They were both very strong-willed men. And to the extent that uh, Bradbury actually wrote a book about it in the 1990s called Green Shadows, which documents the the, the, uh, the terrible rows the two of them had. And Bradbury didn't want to introduce Harryhausen and his friendship with Harryhausen to that toxic environment. So the very last film I found was Moby Dick from 56 and Ray sketch for it. And that that was really a pivotal point in the book because um, for me, it, it, it said everything that, you know, Ray was involved and became the go-to person for special effects. You know, who else could you go to but Ray Harryhausen? Yeah. Um, if you didn't, you were putting a man in a monkey suit. Yeah. Yeah. I could talk to you all evening, John, about the stories from this, but of course I want people to go out there and buy the book. I mean, this is just a taste of what is in this book. Is It has me salivating already. You must be so pleased and so proud that it's now ready to be released and when it comes out, it's the 10th of September, isn't it, when it's released? That's right, yes, and it's, it's already selling very well. It was number one on Amazon uh, just a few days ago. We tweeted about it because it knocked Star Wars Rise of Skywalker art book off of number one. So <laughs> I was like, oh, I was refreshing the page on my browser. I thought, that's, um, is that some kind of mistake? And because we'd seen it sort of gradually creeping up and up and up on different charts in different countries, and we were really pleased that in that category for film and video, it went to number one and stayed there for a good few days. I think it's number three this evening as I speak to you. Yeah. So it's it's great. I mean, when, when Ray died, George Lucas said there would likely have been no Star Wars without Ray Harryhausen. Yeah. Um, and it's great for us that people do remember Ray in that context. It's doubly pleasing for the foundation because proceeds from the book go towards the Creature Restoration Programme at the foundation yeah. yeah so for you know for every book you buy you're saving maybe a toe of talos or a <laughs> tooth of one of the skeletons that's that's all the more reason to go out and buy it as well and you're doing your first book signing just a few days later on the 15th of september in london as well that's right at forbidden planet um a place where i used to visit when i was um schoolboy and a film student so i used to go to their shop in denmark street two shops in Denmark Street. Then when it moved to New Oxford Street, I, I followed them to there. And now they're in this really sort of glamorous um, double um, heights store in um, Shaftesbury Avenue. And I've been to lots of signings there before. I've, I've even been to Ray Harryhausen signings. So to have my own book, I mean, I've had films out in cinemas before. I've won awards before. I've done BAFTAs a few times and so on. But to have a, a signing at Forbidden Planet for me is, is, is really sort of a, a, a career pinnacle. Um, I'm, I'm very excited. So that's on Sunday, the 15th of September at one o'clock, um, one till two. So um, I will uh, I'll, I will put the details of that in the podcast notes. So anybody in or, or around the area 
I would advise people to go to there. I can't wait to see photographs from it as well, uh, John, that, to see you at this book signing will be brilliant. Is there any other way for people that can't make it? Is there any other way if people want to buy a signed book? Is that possible at all? Uh, they can through the Forbidden Planet. So if you go onto the Forbidden Planet's website, they'll have signed copies and that you can purchase from them. Um, and that's a program they've been running now for a while. So it is, it is always immensely frustrating that not everyone can get to London and Sunday can actually be an awkward day to travel if the trains are having engineering works and what have you. But for people who want signed copy, then absolutely, um, you know, go on to forbiddenplanet.com and they'll have a certain amount there that they can they can yeah. send on. And if you bring a book to an event that I'm at, I will sign it. I don't charge. When I was at Comic-Con, we weren't charging for signing. Um, lots of people were charging like $25 for a signature <laughs> and $10 for, for a photo. We, we brought along art cards for free um, because we didn't have the book to sign. So we were signing a, an image from the book. Yeah. And uh, it was, we had a lot of people who wanted them um, because you can't charge young people. They've paid so much to get into Comic-Con, which was brilliant. Yeah. To then try and effectively, I see it's fleecing them for another 30 or $40. <laughs> I think that seems really unfair. But yeah. I, no, that's a, that's a really nice way to think, John. It really is. And I'm sure appreciated by many people too. Uh, I mean, with the, the work that you folks do at the Harry Harrison Foundation is brilliant and I'm looking forward like I say to everything that's happening this year next year and of course beyond next year as well uh, and hopefully you'll be back on the show again because I'm sure there'll be lots more stuff stuff to catch up on uh, it, you know maybe not waiting three years this time because uh, yeah there's, there's so much happening and I can't wait to read this book I've got it on pre-order and yeah just talking to you this evening it's I can't wait to get stuck into it well, there is one other thing to, to let you know as well, of course. On Sunday, the 15th of September, we're having a very special screening at the Regent Street Cinema yes, at yeah. 3 p.m. And it's it's rather bizarre because it's a premiere of a film, a world premiere of a film from 1958. And it's the uh, um, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which is, oh. yeah, which is receiving a 4K screening. And it's the uh, 4K premiere of the restored version Oh. with uh, new audio, new picture, of course. And it's one of only four films of Rays that's been scanned now in 4K. Yeah. So if people come along to that, they'll get to see the film. And then afterwards, we'll be playing our Comic-Con presentation where we're going to be showing images from the book and some that are not in the book and test footage. So the test footage raided for War of the Worlds, um, some test footage we found for other films, that will be screened there at... Uh, at Regent Street, an opportunity for people to ask questions as well. Oh well, this this show will be out in plenty of time before that happens. So, fingers crossed, people listening to this and can get down to London. That's uh, that's a great Sunday out, if ever there was one. Well, John, thank you so much for coming back onto the show. It's always a pleasure to have a chat with you, and uh, yeah, I look forward to you coming back on the show again uh, before too long. Absolutely, Dave. It's been great. All right, thank you, John. Thanks, take care. And the alarm bell, as always, brings to an end another interview. It was so good to have John back on the show. Hopefully we're not going to wait another three years. Uh, like you heard in the interview, there is so much going on in the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation world at the moment, uh, especially next year, the centenary year from when Ray was born. Uh, there's, yeah, we're going to have to have a catch up soon. 
us you can follow us of course there's many ways that you can do that you can visit our website 60minuteswith.co.uk there's a contact us form on there you can email us direct which is contact at 60minuteswith.co.uk something a little bit new to the website is our world tour he says using air quotes uh, please go to the website have a look have a look how you can be involved in our world tour business cards as I speak are already winging their way to various places in America to Sweden to Belgium to Ireland let's fill that map up with pins worldwide I can't wait to see more photographs coming in uh, there's still as always our Twitter and our Instagram at 60 minutes with uh, Twitter we still giving away so many competition prizes followers on there for a chance to win that plus all the news of the, the stuff that we're doing the Instagram again that's for the more unusual pictures uh yeah podcast mascot Bodie people have been asking he's better now the cone of shame has come off he's had a haircut he's feeling a lot better thank you <laughs> And there's the Reddit community. The Reddit community is still there. What we do on there is we post, um, well, post a post for each of these episodes. That's another way that you can leave comments, questions, suggestions about any of the episodes that we do. So if you use Reddit, just follow us on there. We're 60 Minutes with Podcast, and we welcome all the feedback that comes in. And so for now, that's it. That's the end of another interview show. Uh, the next show that's going to be released is another interview show. I'm going to say no more. If you follow us on our social media, here's a good reason to do it. You'll already know who I did it with. Uh, I was sat talking to four fantastic people about an amazing film. So, uh, yeah, prepare your ears for that one. That's going to be a very good one indeed. So thank you for listening and we will see you again very soon. <laughs>